Welcome to Liberty Lifeline. I'm Sean Morgan. I'm here with Cynthia Hughes, founder of the Patriot Freedom Project. And we're going to discuss the recent trials of the Oath Keepers. Can, you were there in D.C., weren't you, Cynthia? Yes, I was there uh, for opening arguments. And then the first day of you know, trial, when the government called their first witness, um, FBI agent, I don't remember his name right now. Um, very interesting. Very, very interesting what I witnessed. Well, let's start from the beginning. What was the first thing that stood out to you that was different from what you expected? Um, it wasn't just one thing. It was multiple things, right? So um, you had a very long opening statement by the prosecutor. Um, you're, you're in, let me set the scene for you. You're in this courtroom. You walk in, you're facing the judge. To the left, to the right of you, you have defendant Stuart Rhodes, defendant Jessica Watkins, defendant Kelly Meggs, defendant Kel, uh, Ken Harrelson. And then you have their, you know, their legal teams. And you have about seven or eight lawyers that are, you know, defending these people. So they each get up, you know, after the prosecution makes his opening statement, they each get up to make their own opening statement. And I think in a five minute period, the prosecution must have objected 17 times. And if the prosecution wasn't objecting, the judge was objecting himself. Um, you have to wear a mask, which is ridiculous. You have to wear a mask. Um, the judge is wearing a mask and literally talking to, you know, the people of the court through his mask. So just so ridiculous. Um, so the you clearly can see, I mean, we're only into, you know, today's day three because they didn't have court yesterday already. They took a day off. Um, clearly you can see this is going to be an uphill battle. All they did was show a ton of signal messages, messages of people really enjoying listening to themselves you know, with their big personalities and, you know, uh, their big words and their, their, their ridiculous rhetoric. And you want to put people in jail for words, you know, for, you know, getting caught up in the moment, for getting caught up in, you know, something that makes them feel important, something that makes them feel like they belong. Um, Tom Caldwell uh, he's, uh, you know, a big, I forgot about Tom Caldwell. So we also have defendant Tom Caldwell on this trial as well. Um, so Tom Caldwell is a retired, uh, Navy Lieutenant commander. So he was in the army, I'm, uh, in the Navy for 25 years. So what do you think people call him? They call him commander Tom. Right. So that's what he is. That's when I'm on my show interviewing the military people, even if they're retired, we refer to them as major or captain or what have you. Exactly. I'm glad that you said that because that's how people refer to him. So in these group chats that are being, you know, aired, there are personal private chats that are being aired, you know, to prove this giant conspiracy. Um, you know, people refer to him as Commander Tom, Commander Tom, Commander Tom. Um, so now because, you know, that's how 
some other Oath Keepers referred to him, you know, he's the head of the Oath Keepers now. You're talking about a man who, you know, was, he's not old, but he's up there in age. He's an absolute love. He's a sweetheart beyond words. His wife is one of the most wonderful people I've ever met. Um, they're just wonderful. They're amazing people. The biggest hearts, very Christian, very conservative. Um, he has so many health problems. He's got to sit in a special chair, um, special chair for, you know, trial. Um, but he is the, you know, the head of the Oath Keepers, you know, and he's like going to take the whole world down. Commander Tom. <laughs> That's weird. You know, there's this narrative that's already been seeded that, uh, you know, they have this very uh, controlled hierarchy and they were, you know, really organized and really had a plan and they were putting down orders and people were following those orders and so forth. And it, what caught my attention along the way was the idea that some of these Oath Keepers could be federal informants. Um, did any of that come out, this accusation that they had a plan, that they were executing a plan? And certainly I would wonder if it was ever mentioned if there were any Oath Keepers who were federal informants. Well, the federal informant stuff did not come out yet, but there is a lot of questions about that with certain Oath Keepers. Um, one in particular that's on trial right Ray now. Epps. <laughs> um, yeah, Ray Epps, right? Yeah. Um, but what did come out during opening statements from the prosecution was, you know, about this this big organized, you know, conspiracy plan, you know, the Oath Keepers, you know, had to overthrow the government and, you know, this whole big thing. Um, what else I noticed at this trial, you know, looking in the jury box, you know, you had jurors falling asleep. I mean, literally, you could see them head back, sound asleep, okay? Um, that is very alarming, right? Because if they're missing out on any of this, you know, testimony, and then it comes time for deliberations and they have to make a decision, either they're going to go along with what their other jurors are telling them to do, and they can't make an informative decision because they're sleeping through half of this. Um, and believe me, I wanted to go to, I'm like, where's my pillow and blanket and some popcorn? It was boring. It is dragged out. This is going to be very monotonous for the next 30 days or so. Listening to the same old, same old, same old, same old. Um, yeah, everybody wanted to go to sleep in that courtroom. But, you know, you're talking about people's lives that are on the line right now. Um, people's families that are on the, the line right now people possibly losing their home, you know, being separated from their spouse for a long time, you know, um, it, everything is wrong with this. Everything you could think of is wrong. And is there anything else that you want to mention about the amount of time they're facing or the, the uh, punishment, the possible punishment and what they're hoping to uh, the result that the legal team's hoping for. Did you have any of those conversations with any of the defendants? I, no, you're not allowed to talk to them. I mean, they're, they're not even allowed to look over to you. You know, you have Ken Harrelson, you know, inches away from his wife, who he's been separated from for over a year. He can't even turn around to look at her. You have marshals, you know, looking over the shoulder of these defendants, you know, as they're writing notes to their lawyers. Um, 
you know, sharing information as, you know, this testimony is underway. And you have these marshals, specifically this one, who just looking over Ken in particular, his shoulder to make sure that he's not writing anything down, like to get a note to his wife. As a matter of fact, um, the week of jury selection, um, Ken's wife, she's, you know, God love her. She's, she don't care. She wrote a note to her husband, a love note. Okay. And she wrote on this note, you know, how much she loves him, how much she misses him. You're my, you know, you're the love of my life. It's like five lines. And she gave it to the lawyer and the lawyer showed it to him. And the marshal went ballistic over this, like lost his, you know what? Okay. Um, And they made a big deal out of it. And the note had to be given to Judge Mehta. And he reads the note in open court. And here's this this giant love note. I mean, I I think that should actually humanize for the jury. You know, that should humanize them instead of uh, make them out to be these uh, insurrectionists. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. But unfortunately, Sean, this is treacherous. I mean, this is an yeah. uphill battle, not DC only for- is a captured area. These these jurors already made up their mind, probably, uh, from what we've seen with other D.C. Um, trials. Uh, it's just a very liberal jurisdiction. Anything else you want to mention about the Oath Keeper trial? Well, you know, the Oath Keeper trial and other trials, right? Like, I love when a lawyer will be, you know, saying something and, and maybe there might be an objection from the prosecution or from the judge himself. And it's, the jury will, you know, that will be striked from the record and the jury will disregard, you know, what they just heard. I mean, it's there. It's in your head. You heard it. You're not disregarding anything, right? Um, And I don't know, that might not be a bad thing. That might be a good thing. You know, I mean, if it's coming from the prosecution who's objecting, clearly it's something they don't want the jury to know. I don't think anybody stands a chance of survival in this, in the city of D.C. It's very, very, very scary. You know, and and I'll tell you. This whole January 6th thing has been very eye-opening. You and I have had conversations about that, right? And, you know, you come into the court and you're, you know, you're seeing your loved one. I know this from going through this with Tim, especially, you know, all the, you know, the hate that Tim has gotten from the media and other January 6th defendants, as we've discussed. Um, They look at you with contempt. They look down on you, you know, you're not on the same playing field. That really bothers me, right? And when you think about it, this is what we've been hearing for a long time from other people. Like, dare I bring it up, but like when Black Lives Matter first got started before it got hijacked by a bunch of grifters and, you know, and people not really giving a crap about the movement itself and just looking to make money. But when it first got started, you know, when you think back to that and you hear, you know, young men, you know, of color are being mistreated, right? Being, you know, really um, profiled and, and um, you know, treated differently than maybe that of a, a young white boy. 
And I have to tell you, in this whole movement, there might be some truth to that a little bit, but not just in the Black Lives Matter movement, but in any movement. Because I feel a lot of people that get involved in this type of Are you of talking job. about as soon as as soon as a, a movement gets big enough to have fundraisers and a lot of money flowing and a lot of big shots and decision makers and influencers that uh, people with ulterior motives start getting involved? I think it could be that. I think it could be that. But I think more importantly, what I'm trying to say, um, <clears throat> excuse me, is I think that certain people that get into the line of you know, law enforcement, if you will, right? Um, whether you're patrolling in a car, whether you're a marshal in a courtroom, whether you're a public official sitting on the bench and you're presiding over a case, I think something changes with a lot of these people when somebody is in front of them facing, you know, uh, facing their crime. That's what I'm saying. And so that's what leads me to believe when I say in the beginning of Black Lives Matter, we were hearing a lot about that, right? But I think that there is some truth to it. And I think it goes beyond Black Lives Matter, it goes beyond January 6th. And I think we have a real problem in our, in our legal system, if you will. Are you talking about just the stigma of people who uh, are facing allegations? Yeah. Yeah. It's very sad. Yeah, because when you said that when Tim was on, you know, the bench or when he was uh, at trial, I mean, and uh, people were looking at him with hate, uh, that's like a humiliation ritual. I was just interviewing someone from China during the Cultural Revolution. They would have these humiliation rituals where they would, uh, you know, sometimes physically beat or, or just put someone in front of their community and, and just try to embarrass them as much as they could which is a real, real um, stigma in Chinese culture, especially. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I got a notification from CNN on my Android device after Tim's trial to smear his character. I mean, that is a humiliation. Yeah. And we're seeing that a lot for people, right? We're, we're going to see that a lot. Um, <clears throat> I'll go back to uh, Commander Tom. <laughs> you know, this is an upstanding citizen. Him and his wife are, you know, pillars in their community, very well liked, very well respected, very well known. And this event has, you know, destroyed his credibility, destroyed his reputation. Um, they do have some support. I mean, because people know them. They know he is not capable of, you know, being the, the commander of the Oath Keepers. Um, but here we are. And there's something to be said about that. You know, everybody talks about the media, you know, not being fair. I mean, here it is. It's the truth. I mean, it is the absolute truth. The day of Tim's sentencing, um, I was leaving the courthouse and I was walking out of the courthouse and Ryan Riley was like chasing me down the block. You know, people think you're a scam, you're a grifter, you're this or that. I mean, these people, part of my choice of words, like they get off on you know, smearing another person. They get off on hurting another person. I go, I'll go back to a week earlier when you and I were conversating about, you know, things with Tim and, and, and like, you know, other January 6th defendants, you know, 
coming at Tim. I mean, think about this, right? Like, how could you hate somebody you don't know? How could you be so filled with hate and contempt and disgust for somebody? I mean, Tim, unfortunately, maybe I could understand it slightly. I don't operate that way. Everybody gets a chance in my book, but you don't know me. You know nothing about me. You know what people, people are for telling a scapegoat because they're feeling a whole bunch of despair and negative emotions. And as soon as someone suggests, oh, this is the bad person, um, and if they don't do their due diligence, then they just fuel all that negativity towards some kind of scapegoat. And uh, it's interesting that it happens even within uh, the community of the J6ers. But if you, if you really zoom out, it's happening at a national scale with the J6ers that, that like people, especially brainwashed leftists who believe the mainstream media, they're trying to blame the J6ers for everything wrong in our whole society. Like if it wasn't for those uh, Trump supporting insurrectionists, then everything would be great in our country. Uh, And people do the same thing to people who don't want to take the vaccine. It's those anti-vaxxers, you know, there's some trying to like create an untouchable class, a group of people that we can blame for everything. We know what happened in Germany when they tried to do that. Uh, So it's really unhealthy and it's really, yeah, it's a sick society when we start stigmatizing groups. Um, But you, you had a story you wanted to share with me of someone got a hold of a J6ers uh, phone number and started harassing them. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and this just goes to what, you know, what we're discussing, right? The stigma. And it's not just about a group. It could be about an individual. I mean, Tim is so singled out. Tim and myself are so singled out by a certain group of January 6th defendants. I mean, they spend day and night just disparaging us. Um, none of these people have had a conversation with me to, to get to know me and find out that I may not be any of the things that People are poisoning their minds with, but that's neither here nor there. Um, So two weeks ago, um, as you know, I think we discussed it. Kyle Young was sentenced to like, um, I think it was like 87 months um, in prison. Um, Unfortunately, he has a little bit of criminal history and um, unfortunate, you know, video footage um, that did not help him. But what people don't know, uh, except when I'm talking about it or other people like me are talking about it, um, is that Kyle Young has a wife who is amazing and incredible, you know, young woman. And he's got, you know, a couple of kids. He's got like four kids. One of them was an infant, you know, when he went to jail. I mean, he barely knows his youngest child. It's very sad when you think about it, right? Um, So the day of sentencing, like the day following um, when Kyle's wife was traveling back to their home state, um, a phone call came in to, um, you know, the the home phone um, and then his nine-year-old answered the phone. And it was this man um, who thinks that we don't know who he is. We know all about him. We know exactly who he is now, Um, you know, was harassing this little girl. She hung up and he called back off the voicemail. So, some liberal who hates J6ers called up the family and, and said bad things to a nine-year-old girl? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, 
Don't drop the soap. Kyle, Kyle's family, you're, you know, Kyle's a traitor. He's, a, you know, some other words, you know, I hope he doesn't drop the soap. I hope he stays in jail for the rest of his life. I mean, imagine a little, a young child having to hear this about their father. You know, their mother isn't home. They're, you know, they're with the person caring for them. It's so alarming. You know, um, I took that recording. I put it right up on, you know, social media because I said, everybody needs to hear. Forget the fact what you think about the person who's accused of the crime. There's so much more to it than that. You know, you're leaving these people that are going to prison are leaving behind, you know, their spouse and their young children. It's not just the life of the person going to prison that is upside down. Their family is even more upside down. And let's be honest here. Okay, Sean, let's be honest here. January 6th consisted of what? Four, five hours of a little bit of chaos. Okay. Um, So over 900 people in that group of 900 people. Yeah. There's some bad actors. There's no getting around it. There's no denying it. But the majority of the people are not. And their their lives are obliterated now. They're absolutely obliterated, right? So like when you think about this whole thing, you have the people of DC who are living their life now. And if this wasn't in the media every single day, they probably really wouldn't care. But and because- the standard is there are people that actually murdered people and they're out on bail. Yeah. Uh, and these people are people who did not kill anyone <laughs> or anything close uh, mm-hmm. are sentenced to 87 months. And then someone has the audacity to, to get their nine-year-old child involved and harass them when they're already dealing with their parent being gone for 87 months, possibly. So yeah, yeah that's, that just goes to show the type of division that's been sowed within our mm-hmm. country, uh, that th- it's actually the media and the politicians that are responsible for, um, seeding that narrative into people's minds uh, to, like we said, stigmatize uh, a select group of people and try to act like they're the problem of our entire society. Um, But we know that if you're patriotic, if you stand up against uh, this narrative at a school board meeting, then you end up getting targeted. So this is just very important that we wake up to this, what's going on so we can do something about it. um, Because we're trying to save our country. I really believe that there's a reason why Trump uh, named his foundation Save America, because we're, we are trying to save the very nature of our founding principles and everything at stake here. True democracy, true justice, uh, all of these things are at stake. So, I mean, this is an interesting time to be alive, Cynthia, uh, talking to you at this stage, right before the midterms. I just read an article right before we we went live that uh, a prosecutor has enough evidence to charge Hunter Biden. So like there are so many things happening right now. It's it's total war, political war going on. And we're going to see some new developments about January 6th uh, when the midterms come around and if and when Trump has the ability to pardon as well. So as we meet once a week, let's keep everybody updated on because you're you're right there on the ground getting the intel that everyone wants to know about, and they're not going to find out from uh, the mainstream media, right? 
Yeah, I mean, and of course, I'm not the only one. I mean, there's a lot of people that are doing a really fabulous job getting, you know, the information out and better than I, you know, my connection is supporting, you know, these women and their children. That has always been my, and of course, the lawyers, that's always been my, you know, my, uh, my goal here, right? Um you know, being with Ken's wife, you know, making sure she was okay, you know, um, making sure she has what she needs. She's, you know, she's got to be in that area, you know, for the next six or seven weeks, um, making sure the lawyers have what they need. They need not only, you know, emotional support, they need financial support, they need mental support. Um, they need somebody to tell them they're doing a good job. They need somebody to tell them, you know, you're, you're going to get through this. You may not yeah. feel like you are, but you are. They need prayer they need clergy um and that's what i bring to the table and you and your your whole team um i think it's amazing how i mean it's obvious when you're a charity you got to help with the financial things if that's your mission but i think it's amazing how you and your team really uh, pay attention to all of those soft skills and those things that don't have a price tag like having support groups and providing emotional and mental um, support. Uh, it's, it's amazing what you guys do. And I'm happy um, from a distance to, to somewhat be a part of it here. Uh, we're going to wrap up now, Cynthia, any final thoughts uh, of like act, action steps for people who want to get involved and, and help you out? Um, well, you know, we're approaching the 2022 holiday season and we have a lot of children to take care of. Uh, anybody that comes across this that wants to help or support, they could send in a gift card. They can make a, you know, a Christmas donation, a Thanksgiving donation. You know, we want to make sure that these families have what they need for Thanksgiving. We want to make sure that they're not choosing, you know, between paying a bill and buying a Christmas present. You know, you have birthdays during this time. Um, it's a hard time of year. So financial support, uh, is really important gift cards, you know, purchasing one of our shirts, go, you know, supporting us that way, um, going to our merch site and, um, and just, you know, supporting our efforts. You know, we are really doing a lot. We are helping so many families and, uh, uh, I, you know, I like to protect them and I'm very cautious about speaking their names, but we have helped. Do you have a number of how many people? That you've helped so far? Um, I mean, without opening up my, my, you know, my, my spreadsheets and my different things, I mean, it's, it's in the 200 number, at least at this point, nice. you know, some people would hear that and they might say, well, there's over 900 people. It's impossible, you know, on limited funds to help, you know, to help 900 people. And that's why we have the application process. People know where to find us. They know where to go. Our Actually, website. let's confirm. There's going to link link in the description below is patriotfreedomproject.com or .org? .com. .com. Yeah, patriotfreedomproject.com. All the information you need is on our website. And a special message um, about Cynthia Hughes from President Trump. <laughs> mm, very nice. That's, that's yeah. an honor. Thank yeah, you, Cynthia. Let's let's meet up next week and get a new update because you got so many things going on. And let's bring on some of the family members and let them uh, share their stories as well. Yeah, they can't wait. Thank you, Sean. Great. Thank you, Cynthia.